Today's readings are Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, chapter 13, verses 17 to 25. It can be found on pages 1109, 1113, and 1117 on the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. But encourage one another daily, so long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who much give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. Grace be with you all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Part of us hopes that you are real and that you are good. And that it really is true what we say up here every week, that we are more of a mess than we care to admit, but that you love us more than we ever imagined. And you move towards broken lives and draw us home to be with you. And you've done that through your son, Jesus, by taking all of the mess and brokenness on yourself. Would you help us to believe that and to see that for ourselves this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, on one of the episodes of the show, Seinfeld, has everybody on the episode gets into a mentor-protege relationship. I'm, I'm, I know this, the Seinfeld fans just by the reaction there. Um, so you've got this guy wearing army fatigues from the mailroom where Elaine works, and instead of firing him, she promotes him because she's afraid of him. You've got this girlfriend that Jerry is dating who surprises him by admirably talking about this mentor she has who helps her make decisions in her professional life, and he's just confused by this idea. And then you have um, the comedian that stinks, Kenny Banya, and he ends up being mentored um, when he becomes Jerry's protege. And this, that is the episode um, with some, some real good quotables like the Ovaltine uh, bit, you know, it's the mug is round, the cup is round, why don't they call it round teen? And then Kenny says back to Jerry, that's gold, Jerry, gold! Um, for you Seinfeld fans, that's where that quote comes from. And th- now the interesting thing is this idea of a mentor-protege relationship is someone voluntarily inviting someone into their life to tell them something about what to do, you know, give them advice, steer them, guide, guide them in a direction. And the 
the problem with this show, and really the reason why it's so funny, is that all of those characters, those main three I just described who become these protégés, they're very two-dimensional characters who are all portrayed basically as dunces, you know, as these simple-minded, naive, overly exuberant people who just want someone to tell them what to do. And so they're intentionally this caricature of kind of the stupid person. You know, none of us would would do that. None of us would want to get into that sort of mentor-protege relationship. Why? Because we inherently are all smart enough to not have to have someone tell us what to do. Each week we have a question in the worship guide, and, um, and you guys you know, fill out those little contact cards, and some of you put an answer to the question. And last week's was, why don't we like, or why don't people like, let me get it right, why don't people like being told what to do? And one of the answers nailed it, and it says, um, it hurts our pride. Don't I know what's best for me? We don't like people telling us what to do. We have a bent against it. Um, in this passage that we're reading today, it's an amalgam. Um, we read straight through it as if it was one portion of Scripture, but it's an amalgam of all the places in the letter to the Hebrews where one particular word comes up. So we put all these together, and it's the word in Greek is parakaleo, which is similar to the word for paraclete, which Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo means like urging or exhortation or... Um, um, being, you know, giving counseling, bless you. And so it's this idea of speaking into someone's life. And it's translated in different ways. Encourage or urge. Those are the ways that we read it in our passage today. And so two of the instances are talking about mutual urging, mutual exhortation, mutual encouragement within the community of faith. It's calling us, the Bible's saying, um, don't be afraid to be the protege. Don't be afraid to enter in willingly move. I urge you throughout this book, we're being urged to open up our lives to other people telling us what to do, to other people speaking into our lives. And then, um, and then towards the end, in chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews, who we're not really sure who wrote this book, says, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. And in the Greek, that's a little bit like, I parakaleo you to Follow my parakaleo. You know, I encourage you to listen to my words of encouragement. It's, so, you know, it's within each other. Open yourselves up to each other, speaking into each other's life. And then it's also, hey, me as a leader, I'm writing to you. And then there's this part within all of this where there's this picture of what that looks like with, with respect to leadership. You need spiritual leadership in your life. You need to, these harsh words that, um, in some sense, I'm glad Mark read that part before, I came up and had to read it. The part that says, submit to your leaders. I'm glad that came off someone else's lips instead of mine. Well-timed, Mark. Um, <clears throat> you know, so you got that mixture, and you need each other. You open yourselves up to each other. And you need spiritual leadership. You need shepherding. So we're going to look at this. Because we lo- cause it seems very strange to us, and it's something to make fun of, in a sense. People who eagerly want input from the outside to direct our ways. What? What happens to you that you would want to do this? I'm going to point to three things in this passage that I think need to speak to us. And the, they, they go like this. The three things to know. You've got to know yourself. You've got to know the stakes. And you've got to know the shepherd. Self, stakes, shepherd. S's. I don't usually go to that high of a level of planning, but I did it this week. 
know your, first of all, know yourself. Um, in, in chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus is referred to, and he's talked about as the great shepherd of the sheep. And isn't that lovely? Um, it's not just a statement about Jesus. It's also a statement about us. What are we? We're sheep. And we sang. I'm really glad Jonathan picked this song that perfectly fit. We opened up singing about we are the sheep of your pasture. And, and, and a lot of you, I heard a lot of voices, a lot of you sang that. And you know what? Sheep are not just these nice, fluffy, stuffed animal-like creatures that look really cute. They're not, it's not a very attractive... It's not a compliment. It's not a... This is not the Bible's compliment to you. And John Stott is a theologian who has a, a little cottage nearby a sheep farm, and he writes, he writes about what he's learned by living next to a sheep farm. He says, For sheep are not at all the clean and cuddly creatures they may appear. Get ready for the, for the um, uncomplimentary portrayal of yourselves here. In fact, they are dirty, subject to unpleasant pests, and regularly need to be dipped in strong chemicals to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. They are also unintelligent, wayward, and obstinate. This is the Bible's primary metaphor for what you are. You're a sheep. Have you, have you, have you absorbed the Bible's insult for, for knowing yourself? Have you absorbed it? Have you considered it? And a lot of us, you might... You might not like that, but you don't need just the Bible as an authority telling you that's what you are. Look at your own life. It doesn't take very much looking back. Most of us, it just takes looking back a couple of years to see some of this obstinance, some of the dangerous places our lives have led, some of the unhealthy places we've ended up. Or maybe some of you this morning, the last couple of months, maybe others last couple of days, or even the last couple of hours, you can see your sheep-like obstinance and waywardness. And stubbornness. You know, the Old Testament, the Old Testament um, was even less flattering in how it talked about us. It, it called the people of God, it regularly talked about them as a stiff-necked people. You know, I, I think sheep sounds a little better, doesn't it? You're a stiff-necked people. So this is our, knowing yourself, um, it's a very hard thing to absorb. It's a very hard thing to look at and say, I am, I'm a sheep. But look at your life. Can your, is your life really an argument against it or for it? I know mine's more likely to be an argument for it. My life proves I'm a sheep. And that, you know what we all want to do? We want to self-shepherd. That's actually, in some ways, I think the, one of the most damaging aspects of today's spirituality is that you are told, and we easily buy into it, you can self-shepherd. You should self-shepherd. You know, you should feel like you can figure this out on your own. Shop around, find spiritual consultants. Jesus is your advisor. Self-shepherding. Is that honest, though? Is that true to yourself? We had in our final meeting of our discipleship group called Dive, we had our final meeting, um, I'm all mixed up, it's either this week or the week before. Uh, I think it was Monday, that's what it was. Um, and we had in this meeting, as we've gone through nine months now, of sharing in our stories together and of exploring the gospel and getting it down deeper into our lives. And then we kind of the last phase is talking about our risk, a risk that God is leading you to take so that you'll trust God more with your life. And someone, as they're sharing their risk, says, um, hey, I want all of you to ask me how I'm doing with this. 
It's somebody saying to a group of six or seven or eight people, I'm deputizing you to have jurisdiction in my life. I want to be shepherded. I want to let you in. And that's not, in my opinion, that's not a two-dimensional naivete of someone just brimming with um, innocence. That is maturity of knowing yourself. So you know yourself, but you also got to know the stakes. What are the stakes? And what are the stakes of, how high are the stakes of self-shepherding? I have a, uh, uh, we, I should say, it's not just my one-year-old. We have a one-year-old in our home. And it's just beginning to be that time where you introduce a little bit of the idea of this, this short word, no. You introduce the word no. Just a little bit. It's not like, you know, we're shouting no all the time or anything. But there's just some few especially dangerous moments where he's old enough to at least start to grapple with this idea of someone saying no and something might be off limits. And um, this experience is the same. This is my fourth child, and it's the experience is the same with every child, is that they look at you, and they, they're puzzled, and they're shocked, and then, they, and then they turn the corner into devastation. Utter, complete devastation and betrayal. <laughs> you are going to stop me from doing that? I need to do that. That's amazing. And, I mean, it's, it almost, you almost you stop and you go, whoa, what did I just do? Did I do something terrible? But they don't, you know, a one-year-old doesn't understand how high the stakes are. So we all the time, every, we can't leave the baby alone to self-shepherd himself for 30 seconds. He'll be in the street. He doesn't understand how high the stakes are, but he's exploring everything. And so we're constantly shepherding. We're constantly getting in there. Well, <clears throat> sheep, if we are sheep... What, how high are the stakes? How dangerous really is, is it to get off path and to not be shepherded? Here's, this book is um, by a pastor who used to be a shepherd, and so he talks a lot about um, sheep and what it's really like. It's called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, and it's Philip Keller is his name. He says, Sheep are notorious creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts. Graze the same hills until they turn to desert wastes pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites. Many of the world's finest sheep ranges have been ruined beyond repair by overgrazing, poor management, and indifferent or ignorant sheep owners. He says, no other class of livestock requires more careful handling, more detailed direction than do sheep. He says, there was this bunch of sheep that I watched one day that were being led down to a magnificent mountain stream. The snow-fed waters were flowing pure and clear, crystal clean between lovely banks of trees. But on, ever, but, but on the way, several stubborn ewes and their lambs stopped instead to drink from small, dirty, muddy pools beside the trail. The water was filthy and polluted, not only with the churned-up mud from the passing sheep, but even with the manure and urine of previous flocks that had passed that way. Still, these stubborn sheep were quite sure it was the best drink obtainable. The water itself was filthy and unfit for them. Um, Much more, it was obviously contaminated with nematodes and uh, liver fluke eggs that would eventually riddle them with intestinal parasites and diseases of destructive magnitude. 
Do you know how high the stakes are of self-shepherding? In this passage, this is the way the Bible puts it. In chapter 3, verse 13, Um, encourage one another, and then why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It is intriguing to me that sin is portrayed in the Bible um, almost as a personal force. It's portrayed as having a very sneaky, tricky nature. Are you aware of that? That if this verse is true, that sin is, is sort of a pathway away from God in which it's so tri- tricky and sneaky that you're becoming more and more hardened to the good path the more you're going down this other one. Another place you find this, another place I can think of where sin is portrayed as almost having this personality of sneakiness is in early Genesis when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Sneaky. It's like a predator waiting for opportune moments to, pr- to pounce. Doesn't want you to know it's there. Doesn't want you to know it's very active. Have you, have you felt the sense of the danger and the, how high the stakes are? It's, it's interesting to consider, consider it before it's too late, in a sense. Um, let me read this passage from Wesley Granberg Michelson's book, Leadership from the Inside Out. It's about leaders, but it applies broadly. Mature leaders, he says, not only rely on their strengths, but perhaps more important, learn how to deal consciously with their weakness their weaknesses. Through self-examination, they bring their brokenness into the light and turn towards health. Effective leaders learn how to guard against the disintegration of their inward life through dealing honestly with their flaws and vulnerabilities. Um, And then he goes into talking about um, what was going on with uh, President Clinton during the lead-up to the impeachment and then the impeachment process. And he says this, kind of surprising. He says, in the aftermath of his tardy confession, Clinton did provide a helpful example, which has remained largely unappreciated by a cynical public by forming an accountability group with three pastors. And he lists all who those pastors were. He says, the media dismissed this group as a canny bit of political theater, but it was, in my opinion, a genuine attempt by Clinton to grapple with his weaknesses and begin to live an examined life. Though these three maintained strict pastoral confidentiality about the content of their discussion, what they could share made clear that the process was real, an assessment reinforced by the fact that they all continued to meet long after the impeachment process ended. In this group, Clinton modeled what every politician, pastor, CEO, and leader needs, and I would say every Christian needs, a confidential community of faith and trust where one's journey, one's wounds, and one's hopes can be freely shared through a well-examined life, mediating the healing power of grace. Don't wait until it's too late. Know the stakes. And then the third thing, that might lead you to open up your life to input. 
which something I was going to say at the beginning, you might have noticed the title of this is Why Join? Really, what is happening when someone formally joins a church? The, the main explicit difference that in the transition that's happening there, or one of the main ones, is that that is a point where you're explicitly opening yourself up to input from the community of faith and to spiritual leadership. So why would you do that? Well, the third reason is because you know the shepherd. You know the great and humble shepherd. In chapter 13, there's kind of a cumbersome sentence. It's, it's, it's a little odd in its construction. I don't necessarily know how it all pieces together. <clears throat> now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you. Um, but what I do know about that sentence is that the blood of the covenant is mentioned and Jesus the shepherd is mentioned. And so our attention is definitely being drawn towards those concepts and those images. And when you draw your attention to this idea of the blood of the covenant, you are brought back to the big story of God's people being saved out of exile in Egypt or slavery in Egypt. And the big piece of that Salvation, that being brought out of slavery and God answering them and seeing that they were like sheep without a shepherd, a big piece of that is the night of their freedom when they were told by God to put blood on every doorpost and somehow that blood of a lamb is something God was using to show this image of you, you, there's a way to get saved. There's a way to become acceptable in my presence. And then in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the great shepherd. But what else is he? He's the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. He's the sacrificial lamb. In the Bible, Jesus is the good shepherd. But the way he defines it, he says, the, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. That's a crazy thing to say. That doesn't make any sense. And that's part of the analogy. It breaks all the, the logical ways of the relationship between shepherd and sheep. The shepherd can't give his, shepherd can't give his life for the sheep. And plus, that's stupid because then the sheep don't have a shepherd and they all just die. They need shepherding. Unless there's some way in which some amazing transformation can happen where the shepherd becomes the lamb that was slain. And the sheep, through that, become transformed and somehow become the protected flock forever. It's difficult to fathom. It's difficult to put these pieces together. The shepherd becomes the sacrificial lamb to save the flock. What's going on there? And how does that connect with you? How do, how do we enter into that? And sometimes you just need a children's book to figure these things out. The Princess and the Pig. It's one of my favorite books that I've been reading to my daughter. The Princess and the Pig by Jonathan Emmett <clears throat> starts off with a farmer who has this unwanted pig he picks up at the market. I'll call you Pigmella, he decided. This is a poor peasant farmer. As this seemed like a good name for a pig. It was a hot day and the farmer stopped to rest in the shade of the great castle 
Far, far above him on a high balcony, a queen was inspecting her new baby daughter. The queen was so rich that she had seven nannies. Wow. Seven, seven nannies and didn't have to look after her own child. The queen picked the baby out of her cradle and held her at arm's length. I'll call it Priscilla, she decided, as this seemed like a good name for a princess. At a moment later, a wet, squelching noise came from the baby's diaper, closely followed by an awful smell. Yuck, shrieked the queen, dropping the baby and running off to find the royal nannies. She left so quickly that she didn't notice she had dropped the baby over the edge of the balcony. It's a scary kid's book. Down, 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 the baby went into the farmer's cart and up, up, up flew the piglet into the princess's cradle. Any of you theology people know where this is going? (laughs) When the queen returned and found the piglet lying where the baby should have been, she let out an even louder shriek and fainted into the nanny's arms. The king thought he knew what had happened. A bad fairy has done this, he explained. The fairy wasn't invited to the princess's christening, so she's turned the baby into a piglet to get her revenge. It's the sort of thing that happens all the time in books. Meanwhile, the farmer had returned home and was surprised to discover a baby girl lying where the piglet should have been. The farmer's wife thought she knew what had happened. A good fairy has done this, she explained. The fairy knew how poor and honest we are and how badly we wanted a child, so she turned the piglet into a baby. It's the sort of thing that happens all the time in books. And so, without a second thought, the baby became Pygmela, the farmer's daughter, and the piglet became Priscilla, the royal princess. It wasn't long before Pygmela was also able to, or was able to eat and to walk and to get dressed all by herself. And the farmer and his wife soon forgot that she had ever been a pig. Things were not so easy for Priscilla. (laughs) This is where the pictures do the talking, if you could see them. But the king and queen never let anyone forget that she was really a princess. If you're hanging on the edge of your seat, I'll just leave it up here for after. (laughs) The king and queen never let anyone forget that she was really a princess. You know, that's a silly book about a fun little switcheroonie that happens. And the Bible's picture of the shepherd is the same, only it, it comes with the force of saying, no, this really changes things. There's a switch that happens when Jesus goes to the cross. The shepherd becomes a sacrificial lamb in your place and and takes on all the obnoxious stubbornness and all the penalty of being a wayward sheep that should fall on us and he becomes the sacrificial lamb to hold all of that. And what happens to us is very similar to what happens in this book is that we get transported into the castle of the great king as his child forever. You know, we were stiff-necked people, but God also saw in us redeemable material that we could come in as he used to also call us in the Old Testament. He used to talk about Israel as my child, my firstborn. That was another way that Israel was talked about, and God saw all along that he could pull us back into the castle. He could find a way for us to be 
permanently at home as princesses and princes in his royal courts, never to be let out again, never to be dropped. It can never change. He'll never let anyone forget. He doesn't want you to ever forget that you really are a princess and a prince in the home of the great king. Do you know that? That's where the shepherding analogy goes. And that's how, if you know that, if you know your identity is secure with God, that you're not struggling and fighting your whole life to be acceptable in the courts of the great king, that that's all established already by the great shepherd becoming the lamb. If you know that, you won't be so prideful. You won't be so arm's length about letting people into your life. What's at stake? Nothing's at stake. In fact, you've got everything to gain. You've already got all you need. What more could you gain is but to, to, even, to know even more consistently in your life that your identity is as the child, the firstborn child of God. Are you aware? It all comes down to the Lamb of God. There's actually a slide. I don't know if we can get it up, but I think, I think it would be like the next one. Do you want to try it? There's no slide. This is how it goes. This is an old thing. If you know it, you can say along with it. It goes... Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Again, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. And then the last line, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, grant us peace. Let us pray. Our great God, will you grant us peace? Will you secure in our hearts and our identity what is true through the cross of Jesus? We are not perfect by any stretch, and most of us still resonate with being wayward, stubborn sheep. And yet you have brought us home and made a transformation in our status through Jesus. May we know that that acceptance and validation is true. And may it, may it inspire us to seek to live more accountable lives, less fearful and prideful lives, lives ready to allow input and guidance so that we might stay more securely on the castle grounds of the great and gracious king, the shepherd who became the lamb in whose name we pray. Amen.